0: everybody welcome to the agronomist I am your host Lindsay Smith uh thank you to everyone for hopping on so promptly we're trying out a few new things tonight and I think it might be working looks like everybody managed to hop on or maybe John thank you for the welcome John just didn't nap this this evening so hey uh, but great to see everybody in the comments fantastic uh great to see you here every Monday night. Um, It's a lot of fun. And uh, I am slightly jealous that we're talking about some green grass poking through in Alberta. Um, But I suppose that means that uh, maybe there's a bit of moisture. Uh, There is no green grass in my neck of the woods. It is frigidly cold today, uh, but it's going to warm up later. Okay, so this is The Agronomist. I think most people are pretty excited for tonight's episode. I know I am. Uh, Quickly, though, a quick reminder, do sign up for those CEU credits. If you collect them, go to realagriculture.com slash agronomist. Tomorrow and let us know that you'd listen to the broadcast to collect your CU credits. Um, and uh quick shout out for next week, 8 p.m., our first April episode. Yes. Almost April. Um, we're gonna talk wireworm next week, um, from coast to coast. Okay, mostly not quite coast to coast. Sorry to Kevin. Um, we don't actually mean BC, but from you know, Alberta to the east coast all right um <laughs> and we do of course have our show sponsor uh sponsors to thank for tonight's episode as well so thank you to adama canada to real Ag radio to mind your farm business uh while other sources of innovation run dry adama is here to deliver leveraging the world's largest library of actives to provide innovative crop protection solutions to your greatest challenges we're all in on you talk to your adama sales rep today or visit adama.com Come. All right. Without further ado, let's get to tonight's topic. This is going to be a popular one because of course it's super timely and everybody loves wheat. Yes. All right, let's of bring course. in my guests. We've got Russ Burger and Peter Wheat Pete Johnson. Welcome here, gents.
1: Thank you. We're happy to be here.
2: Hi, Pete. That looks like I'm frozen. Oh, no, there I moved. Yes, I moved. And and Scott, there is Yay. no mute button tonight, baby. There is no mute button. Not only is there no mute button, but Lindsay admitted. <gasps> Look what I did. What happened?
0: This is amazing. I did that. I didn't actually. We have no idea what happened. He'll come back in just a moment. Um, Or maybe this is how I get my. This is how I get my revenge for last week and him chirping me in the comments. Uh, There you are. Okay, Pete. Unbelievable. It's even (laughs) better. It's even better than a mute button. I can just like kick you off the show.
2: It's amazing. (laughs) Oh gosh.
0: Alrighty. Um, Now before. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yes. The Smackdown button. Before we get going, Pete, you are wearing red plaid and it's not for Cabot cheese, though. They also wear red plaid. Tell me about um, your play that's coming up, your
2: dinner theater, whatever it may yep. be. It's not dinner theater this time. It's that at the Thistle Theater. So that's the the uh, town hall in Embro. And I have such a fun role. It's called Red Plaid Shirt. Anybody that's in the Embro area, either this weekend or next weekend, you need to come and see the show. It's, it's a comedy. It's about retirement. So it's right up my alley. And... I love my character. It is just oh yeah, you got it. it. It is just a blast developing Fred. I'm Fred Baxter. I'm a retired accountant. Okay, I oh. just retired and an accountant. So you, can, I, I know nothing about numbers. I can see Russ just wanting to say you know yeah, nothing you, about accounting, you, Johnson.
1: You are totally yeah. out of type.
2: Exactly. Exactly. There you go. <laughs> so so not typecast at all, but uh, community theater. Lindsay, is my comic relief. And it's been really good. We're back in person. We don't have any restrictions on the number of people we can have. We are asking people to mask when they come into the theater. That's pretty standard across all the the different uh, theaters right now. But beyond that, uh, just show up, watch the show, laugh, laugh. You will laugh out loud. I hope you will laugh out loud and laugh lots.
0: All right. Okay, and be sure to heckle anyone who goes. Please, anyone who goes, heckle for me. All right, now, now, Russ, um, tell us about uh, whereabouts in Ontario you are, and a little bit about uh, Better Crop Spray Barker.
1: Well, I uh, I currently uh, live between halfway between St. Mary's and Exeter, about a half hour north of London, Ontario, and. Uh, I'm a Pioneer sales rep that uh, sells seed, corn, soybeans, wheat, et cetera, with Pioneer Hybrid. My son and I farm together on uh, several hundred acres, and and the Better Cross Barker, that's just a little little fun thing that I've done for a number of years. It's a YouTube moniker, YouTube channel that is used to talk to our customers about agronomy issues, and uh, we try to have a little bit of fun with it, too, and bring my three grandsons in uh, from time to time, and... And show the rest of the world how smart they are.
0: All right, I like it. Everyone's going to have to how go check How much
2: grandpa's taught them? How much grandpa's <laughs> yeah, taught them? There you them. go. <laughs>
0: oh, yes, <no.
2: laughs> I don't have to teach them very much.
0: <laughs> uh, so now, but tonight we are we are going to talk about assessing winter wheat. Um, not just of course from the ground but from the air Um, I do want to get a quick plug in of course Pete uh, you and Bern Tobin just put together a a wheat school episode that just went up late last week it's on realagriculture.com it's on YouTube as well talking about the economics not just the agronomics so tonight we'll we'll focus on the agronomics but I did want to put a quick plug in so if you could just quickly a little promo for that wheat school
2: yeah, so actually that wheat school and tonight are going to really complement each other super well, I think, Lindsay. Just because I we've, we have other videos up on real agriculture in terms of the agronomics. And this will go up as well on, on the website. So there's lots of agronomics. The economics play so much differently this year because we have $12 wheat. I have, I have growers talking about 15 cent a pound straw in the windrow. And meanwhile, we have people like me who are silly enough to forward contract some of this wheat crop at, at only $7.25 a bushel, which any year before this year was a heck of a price. And now at $12 <laughs> wheat, I'm $5 out of the money and you just go wow it it really does it changes the economics not only that nitrogen's at a dollar 30 a pound Uh, Mm -hmm. it looks like we're going to be able to get most of the nitrogen that 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 looks a little bit firmer now than it was but regardless it's incredibly expensive so maybe being able to grow some nitrogen for the 2023 crop after the 2022 wheat crop comes off also plays into those economics. So, so many different th- factors this year from normal. It, it, it's, it isn't the re- reason we'd like it to be this way, but it really is cool to force your brain to think it through.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Russ, this this whole discussion of the nitrogen factor, for sure, is is a bit of a scary one. And we are going to talk about, you know, yes, it's too early, all those sorts of things. But in, in sort of gauging that, that sense out on the landscape, are you hearing from neighbors and, and customers and these sorts of things about the worry about nitrogen this spring?
1: Oh, there's no question. It's, uh, it's one of those stresses that's in the, uh, well, at the back of everybody's mind. And, Pete's, uh, I mean, it keeps changing from, uh, day to day, if not hour to hour. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, Brian and I, we talked about it quite a bit already. We've got our plan in place, but it's mm-hmm. hard to know what everybody's plan is. And uh, I just worry about our own plan. I'm not going to get too hung up with what other people are doing. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's too complicated. <laughs> Everybody it's a new, take it's, care a new of your own.
0: Yeah, it's a new paradigm. Like, oh, the
1: old rules. The old rules don't fit anymore. Uh, mm. So, yeah, this old guy yeah. is just trying to stay out of the way. <laughs>
0: more as as so pete is this where we start you know we jump forward in the conversation and start sh- chanting red clover red clover red clover,
2: clover yeah so yeah <laughs> definitely one of those things, Lindsay, that, that we want to consider. I think that's a hundred percent correct. Uh, and the problem of course is the stand of red clover. And so we are starting to look at, at planting clover or something after the wheat crop. Is it crimson clover? Is it bursim clover? Mm-hmm. Uh, berseem does most of its growth in the spring. The, the Harrow research station, uh, Craig Drury at Harrow really thinks Harry Vetch could work. And then Mike Kober says, Oh my gosh, Harry Vetch is so hard to kill. Peter, don't tell people to grow Harry <laughs> Vetch. So it it just we can grow red clover, I think we can seed red clover after the wheat crop comes off and still make a lot of nitrogen, particularly in the southern part of the area. And particularly Mm -hmm. if we continue to get warmer seasons, which means that we move that wheat harvest a little bit earlier, though a few days makes a huge difference in terms of seeding red clover. So absolutely, red clover is one of those things growers need to consider. And then you say, well, you know, we're talking about assessing wheat stands. If the wheat stand is thin, the red clover can cause issues at harvest. So there's many, many of those things that we need to discuss for sure.
0: Mm -hmm, Which we will. Um, Doug McComb chimes in, they're not giving clover away though either. So it is true, just about everything is a lot more money. I I actually, I should, I haven't seen anything yet that's cheaper than last year. I'll put it that way. If anybody can think of anything that is...
2: Yeah, well, <laughs> your your smile is as cheap this year as last year, and that cheap <laughs> that that died died Jeez. today on you for for not good reasons. It was it's pretty cheap. It was yesterday, Pete. Oh, yesterday. Yeah. Oh, they
0: died for stupid reasons. Anyway, as we were discussing, <laughs> no. Pete, the only good reason for a sheep to die is so we can eat them. Okay. Um, all right. So let's tee this up um, because let's get into some of this assessment. We'll talk about adding that red clover in there. Maybe it is something that's going to have to happen later. Um, I also, apparently I just think and Pete disappears, uh, but that's okay. We're going to go to a clip. This is Jeremy Boychin uh, out in Alberta about this time last year assessing winter wheat stands, talking about um looking at plants per square foot, plants per meter squared. It's so okay, Pete, we're gonna take a little break. You can get your your internet to like chill out, do some yoga, and uh we'll keep you around. All right, let's uh producer Jay, let's run the clip of Jeremy Boychen. We are here today to talk about winter wheat survivability. Uh, do you want to talk a bit about what what sorts of things? producers should be looking out for at this time of the year?
3: For sure, so we are getting into spring timing, especially in Southern Alberta, things are starting to warm up, the soil is starting to warm up, so we want to be getting out there and seeing what our winter survivability of our winter wheat is looking like, which means going out, taking a walk in the field, not just driving by, but getting into the field and pulling out that measuring tape, pulling out your boot or whatever you have to measure and getting an idea of how many of those plants are actually, actually survive the winter. Um, Depending on where you were, you had better or worse survivability. There's a lot of things that factor into winter survivability of winter wheat. We're talking about variety selection, uh, how much residue and uh, how much straw is on that soil to protect those, that that winter wheat as it's coming through. So there's a lot of different factors, so it's important to get out to your own field and and take a look.
0: Okay, so let's talk about some of those factors. What are, what are you looking for when you're you're pulling those uh, when you're digging. You're looking at those roots.
3: Yeah, so, I mean, we're going to walk to different parts of the field. Um, You want to be picking good parts of the field where you think that survivability may have been a bit better, where you had more snow cover, where you have a little bit better soil, as well as those low areas. And you're digging up those plants. You're taking a look at that root system. You're taking a look at the area just above uh, the seed and seeing what that color of that that root system and what that stem looks like. You're looking for a nice white color. Um, You know, some of those those, uh, leaves at the top, they're going to have. Some some burning to them, and that's all part of that winter survival and getting through the winter. You're going to have some of those leaves burning off, but you're really looking for uh, a good strong root system uh, and a good strong uh, little bit of stem beneath the surface there. Um, and you're you're going to be pulling those up, and you're going to be counting them. So get an idea of how many plants per square foot or plants per meter squared you're dealing with. You know, typically in Alberta, we're aiming for a seeding rate uh, of anywhere between. Uh, 40 and 45 plants per square foot or 400 to 450 uh, seeds per meter squared. Um, So when we talk about survivability of winter wheat typically we're getting in the range of when we when we look in the spring uh, in around 200 to 300 seeds or plants per meter squared that are surviving or if you want to put that into plants per foot squared 20 to 30 plants per foot squared. When you start getting below 15 below 10 plants per foot squared um, that's when you start getting into that risk area of is this worth keeping Um, should I be taking it out or overseeding it depending what your next option is.
0: So if you're if you're looking at potentially reseeding I know right now I mean we're about mid-March so we probably should be just waiting a little bit but uh, at what point do you really have to look at reseeding?
3: So absolutely Kara. I mean we are very early in spring right now um, so making a decision on your crop right now is going to be super early especially for those producers who are even further north uh, north of Red Deer and even close to Edmonton. Um, We really want to be waiting and making those decisions based on when you would normally want to seed a different crop into that field. So if you were typically seeding spring wheat into that field you want to align that decision of am I keeping this this winter wheat crop um, based on the normal timeline that you would for spring wheat. Of course if you're putting in spring wheat then you have to worry about uh, you know is winter wheat going to be coming up um, can I be putting this into to a feed market uh, but if you're doing something um, like a broadleaf so like peas or fabas uh, then the herbicides you're going to be using and crop are going to help clean that up but you're really looking at that timing of when do I typically seed in this field for a spring crop uh, and looking to make that decision a little bit ahead of that so you can properly align your your next best option if you feel like that winter wheat isn't surviving
0: Pete, you told me there would be absolutely no costume changes, and you lied, <laughs> lied through your teeth. You,
2: What's your name and, again?
0: Yeah, exactly. This is what is it? Fred Baxter. This is Fred. Oh, yes, Fred yeah, Baxter.
2: Come on, Fred, I Fred just Baxter. Had to...
0: Yeah, the accountant. Okay, the retired <laughs> accountant. Okay, <laughs> all right. So. Ken asked, do the same rules apply for fall rye? So let's, let's back up just a little bit because now Jeremy Boychin's based in Alberta. So, um, you know, some of the things are different, but a lot of things are very similar. So let's just quickly recap when we are assessing our wheat stands, which we're going to do from the air. And we've got some great photos and footage and all sorts of cool maps that Russ put together. But Pete, what are we looking for on, for that sort of like, ideal window or the, Hey, it's not great, but we're still going to keep it window as far as plant counts.
2: Yeah. And, and so that's a great question, Lindsay and, and Jay, if you could pull up that slide three, I think that that'll help us kind of focus in on that. And it's, this is, this is one of those areas where you kind of go, okay, so this is what the science says. And so I have two different charts there. The one on the left, that's Ontario data uh ridgetown college aaron Smith, way back in the late 80s and you might say well that's old data but it still pretty much applies but you would look at that and say wow a full stand by the way and, and these are seven and a half inch rows both of these charts are seven and a half inch rows and a full stand would be about 23 uh plants per foot of row in seven and a half inch rows. And that depends a little bit on planting date. So Lindsay, you know that we've talked lots about, and when we get later, we seed heavier. And so again, right away, these are relative numbers, but I want everybody to take the the Aaron Smith data with a real grain of salt, because the way they did these trials is that they planted October the 4th and October the 10th in ideal conditions at Ridgetown. So in the ideal window, it's early planting. And in the spring, they had a perfect stand and they went out and by hand, they pulled out plants. So the plants that were remaining were 100% healthy and they were Mm -hmm. early planted. They were well tillered. So this is absolutely a best case scenario. And you know, you would say seven plants per foot a row, that's a third of a stand or a little less, and we're still at 92 percent or 90% yield. Wow, that's pretty impressive. The Kentucky data, a little bit more of a range there, and they're not quite as as positive. And that's probably due to the fact that that those plants maybe weren't as advanced in the fall, or they they were a little bit more cold injured or a little bit more prone to heat stress in that area but it gives you kind of the range and typically if you're out doing plant stand stand counts i like to see 10 plants per foot a row on average but okay. you still have to look actually at stems per square foot or stems per foot of row much more so than just plants because those plants that if you know if i have september wheat and they've got five tillers per plant, and I have 10 plants, that's 50 stems. Like, I'm in great shape per square foot. If I have November the 11th planted wheat that's just emerging now, we have wheat that's still just emerging as we speak. Well, gosh, they have no tillers per plant, and so now all of a sudden, 10 plants per foot a row is probably not enough. So as just as Jeremy talked about for Western Canada, you know, there's a range in there, but it really is, it depends. When Ken asks, is it the same for rye? Well, typically with rye, we can live with with a little bit lower seeding rate. What's really interesting is Ken's talking hybrid rye. Hybrid rye, we seed at 50% of the seeding rate to begin with. We start off with lower seeding rates, which is kind of interesting. So you can live with a few less plants. But if you're talking common rye, I think it's, It's just in exactly the same game or close to it as, as winter wheat and winter barley is, is, you know, again, both rye and winter barley, we probably can live with a few less plants, particularly winter barley because it tillers so well, but man, you got to look at, at the health of the plant, not just the plants per foot of row and Russ, then we get into the whole thing. How often is it actually a uniform stand? Like how (laughs) often does counting plants? really make a difference because it's either zero or it's perfect
1: yeah exactly i was sitting here thinking well yeah this is all fine and cute but anytime i've had to look at a wheat stand that uh, you're wondering whether you should keep it's uh it isn't it isn't boiled down to nice neat formulas and nice neat little squares and and spots that are easy to delineate it uh, becomes a uh a mathematical gymnastic exercise to try to understand how much area is affected and and how big an area is, is worth keeping. And then going back and trying to to decide, okay, is the area that's worth keeping, you know, that's going to be 120 bushel uh, potential wheat. The area that's not worth keeping, well, it's somewhere between zero and 70, but the areas there's, it's, it's just, you can't really tell. At least I'm not good enough to be able to tell uh, from plant stand count whether the wheat's uh, worth keeping because it goes from zero to 100 and it's literally can be three feet apart. Yeah. So, so, I use other, so I use this other is,
0: yeah, I was going to say, so let's, let's get into some of these tools because I want to show some of these. And we also have some great agronomic questions that are coming in that I do want to get to in a moment. So please, everyone, keep them rolling. Maybe we'll answer some of them, maybe not. But, um, Russ, maybe walk us through. We want to talk about using drones and using aerial imagery to try and get some of these answers because you, you hit the nail on the head but the one point that I really want to talk about tonight is trying to estimate not just how well the field did or how well most of the plants wintered or, or whatever, but trying to actually make that decision because let's face it. And I'm sorry, Peter, some of these wheat fields aren't going to make it and they're going to get ripped up and they're going to, or sprayed out, please spray them out. Um, and they're going to get put into something else potentially, but we have to make that call. So Russ, walk us through that process. What are we looking at? How, what are the tools that we have to make that assessment on how much of the field is, okay how much is great how much is
2: meh. and maybe before <laughs> as russ starts that jay could yeah. could scroll through some of those those uh, slides that we sent in those pictures at the last just you to did. give a sense right
1: yeah we want to start with a couple of examples of what fields looked like last fall just to uh remind people that uh, there were some pretty variable stands they eh, peaked from last uh going into the, into the winter too much water in october was the uh, the biggest culprit? Um, lots of streaky wheat, lots of tower run wheat, lots of patches. Yep, that looked like that. So, so let's take those fields or fields like them and bring them forward to to March, and going forward, what do we use? And I'll show you kind of what I do to okay. get a grip on on the effect. So, if uh, Jay you just want to head into the first uh, the first slide I sent you. Yeah. Okay. This, this is a, a farm that my son rents and it's a portion. what I did here, this is using a, a drone and drone deployer software. And this is what we call a live map. Uh, in this field, uh, go to the next uh, slide, please, Jay. This is an elevation map. And you can see how the field actually has a bit of a bowl shape to it and everything slopes down. It's a lovely piece of dirt. It's good ground, it yields well, and it's actually relatively flat, but every, all the water does roll down into that dark blue area. And that's where that picture was uh, previously. It had a little bit of a, a dead spot in the middle. And that's from uh, last fall, too much water in October. Last fall, we know it's dead. We know it's uh, probably not gonna be there. And so I was out last week and flew this field uh, with, uh, with the drone and drone deploy. And let's flip to the next shot real quick. All right. On the left, this is kind of a little bit out of order here, but uh, what I've done here is I've got a comparison of drone deploy and of satellite using Sentinel Hub. Um, But let's talk about this drone deploy for a second. That's the image of the field there on the left. And that area that's uh, dead is that odd, deep, dark red blood spot. Uh, that's in the bottom section of the field, uh, kind of an odd-shaped, ridge shaped little little blood spot. Uh, And there's no wheat there. Um, We know that. I don't think it's going to come back. So it's easy to see the rest of the field. Don't get too worried about it. There's some differences, but let's focus just on that one spot. Um, Pete was asking, what's the difference between uh, drone versus satellite? And there probably is... Two main differences. First of all, we want to emphasize that this time of year we're really a little bit too early to be making too many assumptions based on either drones or satellites. There just isn't enough uh, green tissue there to get too shook up. But going forward, or the next few weeks, we'll uh, be able to focus on that a little bit more clearly. So satellites really struggle at this time of year just because there's not enough green green tissue for them to work with. Um, They're they're next to useless until you get into uh, uh, green up conditions that are going to occur in the next two to three weeks, but the difference between drones and satellites. Drones, you have to physically plot the map in the software. You have to drive to the field. You got to fly the drone, uh, and all that takes time. And to go and plot this field and fly it with my uh, with the drone. And this this farm's just down the road. Heck, it's no more than three minutes out of my gateway, but still, it'll take me the best part of half hour to go to the, get it in the software. Go fly it. Bring it back. I've got to download some images and whatnot, so I'm going to burn up some time. I can sit at my desk, and in 10 minutes, I can have a satellite shot, a free satellite shot through a a, a software system like Sentinel Hub that can bring me an image right here at my desk. It's a lot faster. And for you guys, if you're in Western Canada and looking at this thing, it's pretty simple to run something like Sentinel Hub. If I can do it, anybody can do it. Uh, they're basically Google Earth images that you put into a KMZ or KML file, and you dump them into Sentinel Hub. You pick dates for the, uh, for the satellite to kind of a week that maybe you want to search for images, and it'll plop you an image of the, uh, of the field in question. And that on the right, that orange image, is from Sentinel Hub that was taken last week. And you can see in that dark, the coloration is different. The, the spectrum color is different, but that dark area on the satellite shot corresponds pretty well to the dark red area on mm-hmm. the drone, both showing a similar similar condition. Okay, so let's uh, let's move on. So there, there's some differences. Yeah, drone so, Can I just and, jump?
2: Russ, can I jump in for one second? Sorry, if you just back up, Jay, I just wanted to say because I think it's really important. So John Sulik at University of Guelph is kind of helping with this, right, Russ? And that's right. And he's actually he's he's going to put up or or develop some videos that will help you walk you through this process. And we have one that he did for Russ. And I think Lindsay, we could probably put it in the post tomorrow or a link to that in the post tomorrow, because I think I think that in terms of using that, that technology, right, Russ, that little bit of instruction will really help growers. And, and so we want to be as helpful as we can with this technology to move that bar forward. And, and I think John is going to do some at the university of Guelph around precision agriculture, but this is an excellent example of how we can use that technology. Sorry, Russ. I just wanted to throw that in while we were on the satellites.
1: Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's exactly right. It Really, it also depends on what you're trying to find out and what you're trying to learn. Um, I mean, I, I still don't think you can beat drones for precise detail type of measurements. Right. If you get looking at traffic mm-hmm. patterns or misses and small areas in the field, it's, it, it's, it's hard to beat a drone, but um, drones are time consuming. Um and, and they break down and you crash them. You do all sorts of foolish things from time to time. And <laughs> we won't get That's why you that, let the grandkids uh, fly them. They won't, grandkids
2: happen. won't, won't crash them. The no. grandkids are better at you than it, that, at it, Russ. They're just better.
1: <laughs> so, yeah. So anyway, we've got this red. Let's move on real quick. We'll show you what else we do with this type of information. Okay. I zeroed in, went a little bit closer to that uh, red blob. Uh, and, um, uh, let's just flip to the next one. I think that's probably the best thing to do. And what I can do is draw a polygon because these, these dead areas are never nice, neat squares. They're always odd shapes. And so in, in drone deploy software, I can go in and actually draw a polygon and it'll it'll tell me exactly how big those, area, those areas are. In this case, it's not very big. We knew that it's not rocket science. It was not quite two acres. But if you had a number of these dead spots scattered around, uh, you know, fifty acres and a bigger accumulation, it's not hard to soon come to a cal- to come to a calculation of how many acres are actually physically dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that certainly, for my limited economic brain, makes it a lot easier to, to multiply the zeros and add the ones and twos and try to come up with at least with a with a, <laughs> a reasonable strategy if you will uh, going forward or one Mm -hmm. that makes sense to me anyway yeah so that's so now
0: yeah so this is i mean it's just under two acres and the rest of the field as you mentioned and and just as i mean it looks okay right the field Um, was
1: at it right after september 20th excuse me september 30th i meant to say september 30th and it's it's lovely it's going to be fine don't pay any attention to those odd uh odd other colors that really isn't indicative of a whole lot that's gonna affect the crop
0: right now there's nothing used to see here so then Pete so I'm going to uh put a pollinator mix in those two acres and I'm gonna feel good about myself. What what do you say to that? Russ is laughing at me. So that's that's what uh, I know. I'll tell
1: you what we're gonna do. <laughs> Go ahead then I'll tell you what we're gonna do.
0: Okay. Yeah oh I like that. Okay
2: Pete <laughs> should I do so, that so th- and then
0: Russ is gonna tell you what he's gonna do.
2: Well, so the plant something, Lindsay, I mean, pollinator mix, the big challenge with pollinator mix is how tall is it going to get? Because Russ's nice polygon there around the edges, it's going to be thin wheat, but there's going to be wheat there and I'm going to want to combine it because it's $12 a bushel and I don't want to give up any bushels. So the big challenge with pollinator mix is going to be, is the pollinator mix taller than the wheat and does it cause me a problem at harvest? And and so, you know, even red clover, I would say use single cut clover or plant oats. I mean, it, it doesn't really matter to me, plant something, but just be careful with pollinator mix or anything that grows tall, especially around the edges. And and as much as Russ has drawn a nice polygon there and said it's all dead, uh you know, yeah. in a lot of those fields, those, those wet spots, there's plants coming and they're way late and you're going like, how can this be? But there is a not, I mean, there's dead spots. There's spots with zero plants. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But in a lot of those fields where we thought there was nothing coming in, in between the tire runs now, you see some plants poking up and you go, wow. So just be careful with, with what you choose to put in there, Lindsay.
0: All right, Russ. Tell me what you're going to put in there.
2: Well, <clears throat> um,
1: this is easy peasy stuff. There's a there's actually a laneway that goes up. You can't quite tell where it is, but it goes right up kind of through the, the middle of that blob, and it gives pretty easy access. And we've got a thing called a bush hog, and we're just going to go let the let the fox tails and the barnyard grass and the right, way grow up a bit, and then mow it down, and probably mow it a couple times. And that eliminates the problem. You, you, if whatever wheat you cut off, you're sure not going to worry about harvesting it. Um, mm-hmm.
2: And we're going to use weeds as our cover crop and just mow it down. Like and it. So, Russ, my only, <laughs> my only comment would yeah. be if if I have to drive through the wheat to get there, then it's not quite as uh, right. I mean, yeah, but there's a don't lane don't that you don't really. That's right. You don't we, really we don't have access, that
1: much. and that's that's the yeah. problem. But in that case,
2: there's really easy access into it uh yeah. and yeah we're just gonna chop it down why do they Tank. why do they put the laneway right in the low spot that doesn't make good sense right? That's uh, hey you
0: should come you should come to my place there's a barn in the low spot okay Doug, this, Doug. Farm,
1: this farm is this farm is owned by true tree huggers and there's laneways wow. and things along the trees that are there for a very good purpose uh and the reason my son gets to rent it is because he respects that situation
0: all right walking the dog doug says could you broadcast spring wheat into it so pete this is another this is another thing now perhaps not this exact field um because we are looking at a pretty concentrated you know small area of the field that probably didn't make it or won't make it or won't produce enough of a crop to be worth it but we know that there are going to be other farmers that are going to be dealing with perhaps many more um, areas or perhaps larger areas of the field and some will choose to go in potentially with a spring cereal. So what do we have to consider if we're going to put spring wheat in some of these winter wheat dead spots?
2: Yeah and and actually if you're going to do this you wanted to look at that, that shot from last fall and get a sense of where to do it and it works really well and I would say absolutely it's an option. that. A big part. And now we're getting to the economics, Lindsay, because in order for wheat to go into the feed trade, wheat cannot be more than 10% the value of corn. So if corn's $8 today, for wheat to go into the feed trade, it really shouldn't be worth more than $8.80 a bushel. It's worth $12. So mm-hmm. that where i put spring wheat into the winter wheat i now have a blended wheat the millers cannot use that do not try to deliver that to the mill that they will yeah they will just uh they they, yeah they will crucify you so to speak okay like they can't deal with it it's feed if you can find a feed market i would say though to doug broadcasting is is just not really very successful. And that's why we talk frost seed in this part of the world and frost mm-hmm. seed. And what's funny about, about thin spots of winter wheat, you can frost seed the whole field with spring wheat where the winter wheat is good. It will simply outcompete this, the spring wheat entirely. You won't even see it mm-hmm. where the winter wheat is thin. The spring wheat comes where there's no winter wheat. It's a great crop. And then you can combine it all together, but it's, feed wheat and last year feed wheat was worth as much as as milling wheat and so that worked perfectly this year you might have to be a little bit more careful broadcast though it it just it's it's not as don't do it successful as we would like to be that's just the bottom just
0: just don't don't do do it. it okay and john says no that doesn't work i've witnessed the failure that is interceding spring wheat into poor winter wheat so Um, definitely we've heard some some you know success stories of exactly as you explained Pete um, and some certainly where yeah you just end up ruining everything now great question from Brian so for Russ have you ever compared the size of uh, poor areas calculated by a drone versus satellite and would you have confidence in using satellite polygons when ground truth? so I guess that's the key second step to that but what's your confidence level on that Great. Question. Well, the real
1: quick, honest answer is I haven't used satellite enough um, okay. at this point to really give them a good answer. But it really it does depend. If you're talking about our topic at hand tonight, if you're talking about uh, uh, winter winter cereals, whether it's whether it's barley, whether it's winter barley, wheat, rye, I don't care, and trying to determine the health of your crop going uh, in into the uh, replant type of season, uh, satellites have a real tough time just having the the uh, the detail to pick up the areas, I believe, that uh, will help you make that decision. Um, going further into the growing season, looking at growth differentials, looking at nutrient deficiencies, looking at bigger things, uh, I, I think satellites are a tremendous, tremendous tool for uh, other uses. They say they're a lot faster you cover a lot more ground more efficiently. Uh, whether you use satellite imagery, whether the Sentinel, whether you use Granular Climate View, whatever your particular mm-hmm. color of choice is from your uh, satellite providers, um, I don't really care. But um, they're they're different. They are different. Um, very site specific. Very specific. Uh, detail work, I think, is still a drone a drone job from my point of view.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It would be interesting. I, I think Lindsay John Sulik may, may be in the audience, and he, of mm-hmm. course, has had a lot more experience with the uh, with satellites than either Russ or myself. And and he might answer Brian's question in the chat as well because I I think he's yeah. had well he would he would have good good sense of where where that might shake out. Yeah, yeah okay. he knows he knows far more about satellites than I do
0: um and great to see him in the chat and and for sure we will uh be linking to that video pete uh in the post that's at realagriculture.com slash it'll be up tomorrow um quick i want to back up just a little bit so i want to go back a little bit to 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 assessing the stand so we can of course look from the air we still have to make sure though that what we're seeing are viable plants and you know Jeremy mentioned that sometimes, you know, what you see that overwintered is green, it's going to turn brown. Potentially it's going to blow off. You, you need new growth. It's not the brown leaves you're counting um, or the overwintered green leaves. But Jason Vote wants to know, is it a waste of time to dig up plants and bring them in? Or is that time time well worth it?
2: <laughs> yeah, so I think in Jason's case out in Western Canada, where... You, you would like to know a little bit earlier and your, your window between green um, winter th- uh, thaw and the time you need to sp- plant that spring wheat is way tighter than it here is, is here in Ontario. So it's, it's the end of March. We're not going to plant corn until at least the 15th or 20th of April. So we don't need to make that decision. We don't, we don't need that early warning in Jason's area. If they've had a super cold winter, and no snow cover. If I'm in southern Alberta right now and and there is no snow and it hit minus 35 and I've got winter wheat, I need to know because if it's not there, I want to do something with it as, you know, fairly mm. quickly. So in those situations, bringing it in and giving it 2 weeks and looking for that new white root growth right at the crown. If you see that, it's good. If you don't see that, it's not good and and if you can get a two-week jump on knowing that in Western Canada, I- I think it's worthwhile, but Jason may disagree with me. He's out there. I'm not out there. That's just what makes sense to me. He's sitting here in Ontario.
0: I'm going to guess Jason's most of the crops still under snow and or water right now. So uh, (laughs) Manitoba got a heck of a lot of snow. Yeah. And it's been uh, been very, very wet. So I don't know if there's anything to dig up yet, but that's great point though, is it's the timing, right? It's, it's how long you have to make your decision. That might make that uh, make that call. Now, Russ, uh, this one, I'll, I'll start with you. Uh, Warren, Schneck, so, uh, Warren Schneckenberger asks, when doing stand counts, do you count plants that have heaved but still have a few roots in the soil? So how do you account for how those plants have wintered? If you're trying to assess if they, do you count that plant? Do you give it, do you come back and what, check? What, what I, do you do? What,
1: uh, you're ca- asking me if I would count a heave
2: plant?
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Uh, no. No. No way. No.
0: Pete, what about you?
2: So no. so 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 Russ clearly does not farm in Lambton County. Because if they didn't count the <laughs> heave plants, they wouldn't have nothing. <laughs> yeah.
0: Depends. So, you don't have big clays. Okay. Anyway. So, yeah,
2: so no. what, what's really interesting about heave plants is what is the weather in the spring? And does that heaved plant have a chance to generate new roots into damp soil at the soil surface and reattach itself? By the way, heaved plants always, always, always have less vigor. So you can have, and we have had awesome looking September planted wheat in Lambton County with five tillers per plant. And you go into the winter thinking you just have the world by the tail. Oh yeah. Come spring, one side will all be ripped off from the frost heave. And the other side is still in the ground and attached. And those fields, you know, unheaved fields will yield 120 bushels. Those frost heave fields that are, they're there, man, they're 80 or 90 bushels. So it really is a hit. I'm not sure I'd agree with Russ. I wouldn't count them at all. But you certainly have to look at them and and discount them fairly significantly when you do those counts.
1: Yeah, the reason you hit the nail on the head. The reason I don't count them is we hardly ever see them. To be be really honest, it's either there or it's not. Like a a heaved one.
2: (laughs) Russ Russ lives in. Russ farms in in this in this glorious. It's it's. uh, I don't know. It's the mecca of Ontario. He doesn't ever have any problems. I I I need to move about five miles north, and I would farm much better. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. uh
0: no I, I, well okay so i mean not having to deal with it so you and i i'm just going to mention perhaps maybe pete russ is a little less attached to the wheat crop and so he he makes a harder <sighs> faster calling decision because it's all business for russ he doesn't he doesn't let the heart make the
2: decision he lets the head you know it.
0: the
2: the reality well, is, know, is he's no, just too Lindsay
1: Lindsay <laughs> <laughs> The, the the crop that's dearest to your heart, once you get to understand it, is wheat.
0: Oh it always amazing. shows
1: you how much love you're giving it.
0: Right. Because it, really it will tell you when you're not giving it.
1: <laughs> It'll love. tell you how badly you're <laughs> messing up. <laughs>
0: there, that's, that Corn is soybeans.
1: True. They they're they're like the cat. They don't really care. They just they don't care. They just about disappear you. and lay in the corner and you never hear from them. <laughs>
0: So now, we okay, always so,
1: talking to you. we always
0: talking we to you. We have, we have, so, but this sort of does rub with, we've called corn the diva crop. So, um, I guess princess. now we're calling it corn a cat. To princess. Oh, corn princess. princess. Right. Canola yes. is a bit of a diva. Um, yeah. So, but it's also now a cat. And that, you know, that adds up so I'm, I'm fine with that. Dave Hooker has a great point here because we are, yes, we're talking about assessments, but we, we are talking about assessments in light of the fact that crop prices are very good and input prices are very high. We have a lot of economic decisions to be making here. And so Dr. Dave Hooker says, when are we going to do the number crunching of gross revenue, grain and straw, plus the rotation effect on future corn and soy yields, and free one a dollar and twenty pound nitrogen for next year. And he's being somewhat cheeky, but the man has a point. How do you make how do you take all of this into consideration, remembering how important it is to keep that wheat in rotation because it will pay dividends later? Pete, I'll start with you.
2: Yeah, and and so how many times have we gone over this? And Dave's just driving home the point we get 5% more corn yield, okay? Roughly speaking, 5% more corn yield. And the two years later, we get 11% more soybean yield. So if you're Russ Barker in that gorgeous mecca of Ontario at 300 bushel corn... is 15 bushels of corn and, you know, 80 bushel soybeans. 11% is nine bushels more soybeans. So you add those bushels to the bottom line of your wheat crop. I'm not sure what the straw price will be, Dave. I mean, good grief. It's going to be up this year. I I think everybody's Mm -hmm. sort of in that game. Is it 5 cents a pound in the swath? Is it 7 cents a pound in the swath? Are you even willing to sell the straw? Because some growers won't. But mm-hmm. that also comes into play. I talked to a grower today who got, uh, if I recall right, he was getting sixty dollars a bale, and he got eleven bales per acre, so that's six hundred and sixty dollars an acre in straw. It's no wonder that the that the land rent prices are going through the roof. But when you're Dave, when you're assessing those stands, all of that comes into play absolutely. But you know, if you look in those killed out spots and you have too many of those killed out spots, zero plants is zero yield, even with straw. And yes, we can get 75 pounds of nitrogen if we get that good red clover crop. And at a $1.20 or a $1.30 a pound, that's maybe another $100 in nitrogen. You factor all that in, but you still need plants there in order mm-hmm. to, to make this year's crop. So... Uh, we have to factor in the economics, but we also have to assess the stand.
0: And drones are fun, but time-consuming. Russ, <laughs> go ahead. Those well, are my take-home um, messages.
1: Yeah. Uh, we love we love wheat. Okay, that's the first thing. The last thing we really want to do is take out a stand of wheat. Um, and the reason that we love wheat are some of the reasons that Pete alluded to. In, in our local area here, we've got a lot of large livestock farms, uh, a lot of dairies. And so there's always demand for straw. Uh, and the other thing that I, we really enjoy working with our, our local dairy neighbours is the fact that they'll take our straw, but then we get a bunch of manure back.
0: Mm.
1: And you'd put wheat, rotation, and manure, liquid manure, with the opportunity then to sow uh, and establish a really strong cover crop. It won't be, be things like clovers, but we'll go in with cheap cereals like oats, and to have a, a, a vigorous fall cover crop that then can be cut off and returned back for silage, or you kill it and you work it down. Um, you add up, you add up the grain, the straw. Even if you lose a quarter of it with winter kill, in my books, you'll um, you, you still keep the wheat. At least we do around here. We'll still keep it because we're it, it's it's too much value to our rotation too much good things you can do. To uh, you got to fix some drainage. You got to do this and that on a farm. Uh, in August and September is prime time to look after some of those things. And uh, you get the manure back. You get the cover crop in. I don't know how you can do it any better. So we we really don't like to take out wheat unless we really have got and and I can only think of one one instance that would actually kill wheat and plant it plant it uh, soybeans.
0: Forget so corn. Why? We're not going to
1: plant corn into it. We'll plant soybeans.
0: Okay. <laughs> so, what What was it totally dead or what? It was that bad? What happened?
1: There? No, it it was before I had drone capability and it was probably uh, two thirds. Two thirds okay, one third gone. And that, okay, but it looked, that was too much.
0: It, looked, it was bad. Okay. It
1: looked ugly. It was awful.
0: Well, and what will the neighbors say? <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. So, now. Um, hey. It's don't worry eat. about them. Yeah. <laughs> I never do. Uh, okay, so Jason, though, has a... So Jason's based out of Manitoba. Um, winter cereals out on the prairies, they've sort of... They've certainly become more popular. They've dropped off in popularity. It depends on the area. Some people like them. Some people don't. Uh, and so so Jason wants to know, can either Peter or Russ comment on whether they know if there's any advancements coming in winter wheat genetics to overwinter better? So... We certainly know um, in some areas of Ontario we struggle to get winter wheat to really thrive after after our winters. And the prairies, of course, have their own challenges but but struggle with the same. So, Pete, give us the good news. Tell us there's amazing new genetics on the way that are going to
2: fix all of our there overwintering a, problems. There is amazing new genetics on the way. When we're going to get true? them is the question. So, it's <laughs> right. it, it, one of the issues, Jason and And, you know, everybody listening, it's like if you ask Russ how much Pioneer spends on corn genetics, breeding corn genetics, how much they spend on breeding soybean genetics, and then ask them how much they spend on wheat genetics. And there there just isn't the same impetus put into wheat genetics because it's not a hybrid seed. People keep their own seed. There isn't a return to the breeding effort. And is there exciting new stuff? Absolutely. I mean, Rob Graf out of Lethbridge is working hard on it. But then you you look at Syngenta and they pulled out of of breeding wheat. They were in breeding wheat. They pulled out of breeding wheat because there didn't look like there was a profitable operation there. And if you want better advancement, we need more dollars to go into breeding. And I mean, double haploidy. I listened today at the Great Lakes Wheat Workers. We had a couple of great presentations on speeding up that wheat breeding effort. And everybody's paying attention to that. And we can maybe cut three to five years off variety development. So are there exciting new advancements? Absolutely. And if the climate keeps warming, Jason, and you don't get the minus 40s, you only get minus 30, then that allows us to move forward faster. But when you have to get that hardiness to take you know the the north star kind of hardiness where we need to be able to withstand air temperatures of minus twenty five minus thirty uh it just takes so much effort to get good winter survival that that we can't focus as much as we would like on the the higher yield portion of that that effort
1: okay. and give the breeders a little bit of a a little bit of uh yeah it's it's extremely difficult to breed for genetics that have that physiological tolerance to whatever condition you want to talk in this case we're talking about wheat but even if you get into into severe drought tolerance on corn sometimes it's very difficult to breed for very specific uh that are combinations that are that are physiologically but environmentally driven and mm-hmm. cold injury and weed is something that that is strongly environmental, and there's a bit of physiology to it. But to get to my point, it's hard to come up with genetics that will do both, that that mm-hmm. will give you great survivability coming out of the winter, but then be bang, bang, buster yields in the years where there is no winter kill. Mm-hmm. Um, at least where we are here, we don't get winter kill enough that we to get too worried about winter kill so we look at genetics that that really deliver yield and 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 standability and disease tolerance uh grain quality factors and all these other things but um yeah pete the head the 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 return to breeding community with wheat is is pretty small in comparison to the uh the big three canola corn beans
0: and and John makes a comment about, you know, wheat being grown all over the world, and it's true. And so, you know, there's breeding efforts all over the world, but everyone is sort of focusing on the challenges of their geographic re- regions, and Canada, you know, well, Western Canada especially is probably one of the harshest climates that winter wheat has to survive through. So although, you know, we've got advancements in other geographies as well, they don't always translate um, to Canadian conditions necessarily. So it's not apples to apples necessarily. Um, Now, Dr. Dave has a good point here, because of course, one of the challenges for many areas is the overwintering. So you've got exposed plants that have to deal with extreme cold. Uh, Maybe Pete will join us. He didn't even say anything mean to me. So I don't know why he left this time but um i i dave mentions though that the major wheat stand issue in the fall in southern ontario was waterlogged conditions after planting so that's a bit different right we're talking about planting conditions not being ideal not necessarily winter conditions being super harsh to kill off some of these plants and and russ as you showed that map that dead area it's that standing water that did that that's not um that's not winter kill per se
1: yeah, but Dave brings an excellent point, and uh, it's it's something that we're going to be following through here. We just haven't got far enough into this year uh, to be able to assess it real well. But the real question is, Are what are those areas that he describes that were waterlogged last fall? Um, how are they going to look once we uh, get green up? What are they going to look like on the 1st of May? Um, mm-hmm. And it's just too early to, to know that. It's... Those logged areas are going to have somewhat of an effect. They have to, however, every crop goes through its yield its yield determining stage that tends to outweigh everything else. And with wheat, it's, uh, it's the weather in the last part, the last week in, in May through the first week in July, that six week period determines our wheat yields. We get rain, sunshine, lots of sunshine, a little bit of moisture, not too much moisture, and then we'll have big wheat yields. Um, and it usually boils down to what we get if, that the time of year where it makes yield the rest of the year doesn't really matter here as much
0: Mm -hmm. so pete we're just uh thanks for joining us um i'm a little (laughs) disappointed you're wearing the same hat (laughs) yeah um so everyone makes fun of me for my crappy connection at least mine for the most part lets me stay i just get frozen and pixelated uh but so we're talking about of course one of the biggest challenges for the southern ontario crop is was the waterlogged conditions in the fall and so maybe if you can, and we're running short on time here, but um, with how wet it was in the fall, was there a window that was the winner? Was it early? Was it late? Because sometimes if conditions <laughs> were crappy in September, that's not the winning week. So was there a window last fall that, that looks the most promising?
2: So I'll, I'll still take the early wheat hands down. And yeah, it suffered a bit. And I mean... If uh, Jay wants to pull up the uh, that slide of, of Russ's of my farm, or even the, the picture further in of my farm, but the those early plants that were over good uh, drainage areas, uh, I, yeah, Jay, just I think it was, uh, yep, that's my farm. So just if you advance one more, and you can just see what my wheat looked like. Oh, well, that's mine. Yeah, yeah sorry. Yep. Yeah. Anyway, uh, right. I think
0: we want at least one of Johnson's farm so that everybody yeah. can pick on.
2: <laughs> well, that that was yeah, that yeah. was his. But
0: oh wait, hey, I'm yeah, we're getting close. We're getting close. Yeah, we're getting he there. Had we're tile, almost there, John. Yeah,
1: tile run weak. Yeah, tile run week Ninja Pete. Yeah.
0: yeah, I think yeah, it absolutely.
2: Is. Also, so, yeah, back up John, to about slide slide two. I think it is Jay.
0: Um. John, I'm starting to no, think that you're of mine, perhaps sorry. Getting paid by Starlink. He's always got... Yeah. Ah, here we go. Farmer Yeah, Johnson. so I actually...
2: There. I used this in, in uh, Dave Hooker's uh, drainage class. And, and it's really amazing to me. But look at that tile-run wheat. And this is planted on September the 20th. And, you know, I'll take that wheat over November wheat even though the fact that it it looks less than ideal. Now there is on some of the really heavy soils. And by the way, tile run wheat, you get 14 inches of rain in in October and your your tile coefficient is a half an inch. That means you remove a half an inch per day. And so guess what? Half an inch per day, that means 14 inches takes 28 days to get rid of that water. And so you can't get rid of it fast enough and we get this mm-hmm. tile run wheat. There's some other stuff going on in this particular wheat field. But right now, Russ, you flew this field. We saw those pictures. Yeah. Uh, I think that wheat field still has amazing yield potential. And I'll take it over November it's, wheat any day of the week. It's, it's going
1: to be fine. And you remember last fall, the big question was, what
2: about all this yellow, orange looking wheat?
1: I've never seen it like this before. And the wheat's going to die. It's getting worse. And and I know you were saying, and I used to, I would, anytime anybody phoned me, I'd say, just stop looking at it. It'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Come back in the spring. And you go back at the same fields right now. And they, for the most part, are u- a much more uniform green as they're starting to come out. But it's it's just a little early to make too many statements. But I suspect that uh, all those odd colors from last fall, we won't be able to, uh, once the once plants kick into gear and start putting out new leaves, we're not going to be able to tell them where they were before yeah. versus what they see mm-hmm. now. So I'm
2: not, Jay, I'm not worried go about slide it. one there. Go, go to slide one, Jay. Cause I just want to throw that up and and just kind of, I want to poke a little fun at Dr. Dave as well, because here's Dr. Dave's wheat. And, and again, it's tile run wheat and Dr. Dave actually had more rain than I did, but all that I wheat, wheat is quite... still there. And so I think that wheat still has really good potential. The question becomes, how do I manage it? In my field, I think the good wheat outweighs the poor wheat. So I'm probably going to manage it like a good wheat field. In Dr. Dave's case, if that's my wheat field, the poor wheat outweighs the good wheat. So now I'm going to manage it like a poor wheat field. And if I manage it like <laughs> a poor wheat field, all those good strips are probably going to lodge flatter than, you know, pee on a plate. and It's going to be a brute to combine. But those are the decisions I think you have to make in these early fields, and and I'm I'm happy to make those decisions as long as the stand is there.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, who has better GPS, Farmer Pete? Sorry, or Farmer so Johnson or John, John,
2: No, no, look, that you're, you're looking at my plots. You're looking at my plots. So we nudge those mm, those rabbit what? runs, or so we can find them with the combine and mm, combine risky. twenty foot wide. Uh, swaths with my 21 and a half foot wide header so it's uh you, you can oh, laugh at me john okay. but there's there's always a reason there are no mistakes in agriculture only test plots
0: only test plots and your whole farm is test plots so there we go i like yep. it um and i i am looking uh for i am looking forward to where this goes um dr dave says this is his neighbors wink wink nudge nudge um he didn't put the <laughs> wink wink <laughs> nudge nudge i am i added that because Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. You'll never know. Uh, but good fun, and I do, I'm do. i looking forward to uh, seeing how this all does play out for this season. Uh, we did have uh, one of our uh, tried and true uh, commenters, Warren Schneckenberger, sent in some photos as well. I don't know if we have those to share, but um, for Eastern Ontario, I don't even need to put that caveat on there, but it looks good. It, 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 like it looks really good, I think.
2: I wish my wheat I mean, looked that good. Oh my yeah, gosh, please, that's gorgeous. Please don't make Isn't fun of holy... our snow
0: that we still have. But look, that's pretty good.
2: Yeah. Nice field really good. Yeah. 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 Nicely tilled, yeah. 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 Yeehaw. So
0: this is, just so you guys know, this is eastern Ontario. It's past Belleville. You have to keep going.
2: It's further <laughs> is there agriculture? Does something yes. exist past I'm past showing Toronto? you there's
0: this... This field nothing exists past
2: throttle, Lindsay?
0: No, of course not. I know. I live in the woods apparently. Um all right. Okay, we are over time which I'm not surprised at all. I think we we probably need like a an agronomist after dark for afterwards. Um but we will I we will check in on how this all goes of course as the growing season goes on. Then you know, we've got a couple of weeks ahead of us that should give us we hope uh, lots of green uh plants coming up and some good hope for the season ahead so we'll we'll be having more conversations i'm sure about how to manage this crop uh once we know what kind of growing season we have in front of us but uh russ thank you so much uh for putting up with myself and pete tonight
1: oh thank you if that's that's the toughest thing i've got to do today or tomorrow uh, life is okay
0: <laughs> you're doing okay all right um all right and Pete thank you so much of course for joining us and everybody head on over uh to realagriculture.com and uh, look up that latest wheat school as well uh that Pete did with Tobin. it's also a great one so Pete thank you and only one costume change
2: yeah well you didn't you didn't go to a second clip so I didn't have a chance <laughs>
0: it's sort of my jam I gotta tell you okay uh thanks
2: everyone thank you to
0: everyone in the comments uh, great to see you all there fantastic questions great discussion i appreciate it as always tune in next week we're going to talk wireworm in western canada in ontario out east um everywhere because it's a pest we love to hate all right and uh, head on over to realagriculture.com slash agronomist to collect your ceu credits big thank you to our show sponsor adama canada and uh realig radio and mining farm business and we shall see you next week Cheers, everybody.